I'm excited about this morning what we're going to be talking about. Uh, before that, just a little reminder that uh, I mentioned last week by way of announcement. Uh, I want to highlight it again this week. Uh, we talked about a youth pastor last week and just the desire to uh, have someone step into that space and disciple kids well from that middle school age, that sixth through uh, high school. And um, just to kind of reiterate, our goal is to raise $45,000 and uh, to do that in donations or pledges by the 15th of July. 15th is a Sunday. Um, and uh, there's already been significant progress toward that goal, uh, which is uh, something for us to be really encouraged by. Um, but we would love for you, if you need to get a pledge, and you know, Brooke has some available uh, pledge cards, uh, but we would love to continue to pursue that. Our hope is, and the reason we set the July 15th deadline, and again, we don't need all the money up front, we just need it in terms of pledges uh, for this year, is so that we could have someone in place for the fall. And so we're praying toward that end and uh, really excited about the possibility. Um, and so just be continuing to pray about that. And July 15th is what we're hoping uh, to be able to announce that and say, hey, we've made our goal and here we go. All right. Um, today we are going to be in uh, one of those classic passages in the Gospel of John. You heard it read this morning, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And this is a, a familiar, really um, interesting passage. And uh, what I want to do this morning is just share one brief thought from the text. One that I hope will uh, get us to look at the passage in a way uh, maybe that's new or fresh uh, for you. So John 10, 1 through 10, I'm not going to read uh, the whole section again. Uh, but many of you are familiar with what it said. If not, I would encourage you to look in your copy of the scriptures uh, I'll have verses on the screen shortly, but uh, not of the entire passage. Uh, what you heard communicated by Jesus in this particular text is that he is the shepherd, that he loves and cares for his sheep. He also calls himself the gate or the door, uh, the way in which all people can enter into relationship with God. So he's making some very bold claims, some big statements about who he is. And then he finishes after talking about protecting his sheep, caring for his sheep, knowing them by name, uh, all of these kind of amazing statements. He gets to this pivotal verse 10 that I think many of us have either memorized or know in, uh, in uh, easy measure. And that is, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's that uh, amazing phrase, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, or to have abundant life. Now, that's something that I think we could probably all echo that we wish everyone had. And that would be my wish for each of us here, an abundant life. And Jesus says that he came so that we might have life fully, completely abundantly, overflowing, no compromise, no excuses, the fullest and richest life. I mean, that's an amazing statement. And when you look at the text, you, you, maybe your heart resonates with that same verse, that God has come for a very specific purpose and a reason to give us fullness. And yet, the text also says there's something standing in the way. 
and that's the thief. The thief is the one that's thwarting this outcome, standing in the way of the full and complete and whole and abundant life. So I want you to just keep that thought in the back of your mind for a moment, that we have to do something about the thief in order to experience full and complete and joyous life, okay? Keep that thought there. And what I want us to do is to jump to the end of the section. Uh, The ending of many things often gives you context or purpose to the rest of the um, reading. Or in the case of a movie, when you get to the very end, sometimes the little twist at the end informs the way you should have seen the whole film. And that's what happens in this particular text. There is a little twist at the ending that I think gives us a little bit uh, better understanding of what's going on in the text, all right? So if you look at John chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, you're going to see this. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words, the words that had been spoken all over chapter 9 into chapter 10. Many of them said, he, being Jesus, has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? A real key phrase. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's going to be the key for us to unlock the context. So... In order to get that, we got to go back to chapter 9. There's a story in chapter 9 told of a man who was born blind. See the connection. Man is born blind, and uh, all of the people are kind of witnessing a moment where this man who for his entire life cannot see and now has been granted sight and can see clearly and is walking around telling everybody that he has eyes to see. And the question is being asked in the text, and I'm not going to go into this section really long because I'm going to teach on it later this summer. But the question is being asked, what, what, what happened? How did this take place? How is it that you were blind your whole life, but now you see? And then on top of that, a second question is asked, and why did this happen on the Sabbath? How did you have eyes to see, and why did this happen on the Sabbath. What they're wanting to do is get to the bottom of the situation. There's something going on and they're trying to figure out how it all transpired. And what's interesting is the people that are asking the question are the religious leaders. They're the uh, authorities. They're the pastors, the elders, the uh, small group leaders, the people who have been a part of a church context for a long time, maybe uh, people of influence within the church that if you're a part of a church growing up and you were like, oh, yeah, those, those people, they've been around. They, they know what it means to be people of faith. Uh, they know what religious life looks like. That's who he's speaking to. And they're having this little dialogue, and there's this tension about what happened. And there's specifically a lot of tension around this idea that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. What is happening is Jesus is acting outside of their assumed boxes. We think religion and faith should look a particular way, and Jesus is stepping outside of that. And he's creating this tension that the established way of doing things is being thwarted, that the thing that we're comfortable with is being overturned, and it is not something we're enjoying. And so that's, 
the context. And into that context, at the end of chapter 9, verse 40 and 41, it says this. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So there is this continued idea of blindness, a blind man. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And uh, they go, oh, so you're saying we're blind too. You don't, we don't get what's going on. Jesus said, I'm just saying that if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But since you say you see, then your guilt remains, right? So he's having this. He says in verse 1 of chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now, this is important. There is no chapter break there in the original. There is in our version to just uh, help us to look up verses. But there was no chapter break. This is one continuous thought. This is Jesus talking to the same group of people. A miracle has happened Jesus is being questioned by religious leaders. All of that is taking place. They say to him, oh, do you think we're blind too? Then Jesus says to them, not like, hey, they took a break, came back the next day. He says to him right in that moment, truly, truly, I say to you. He's talking to the religious leaders, and he says, there are those who are thieves and robbers. And he compares. He does a little compare and contrast. There is a shepherd, and then there are thieves and robbers. He's painting a picture that these are two utterly different groups, right? And if you were to uh, maybe better translate the terms thieves and robbers, it would be people who exploit others and people who abuse. That would be the language. Those that exploit and those that abuse would be maybe a better way for us to understand what's going on. And he's showing the difference. There's a shepherd who loves and cares and is gentle. And then there are thieves and robbers who abuse and exploit and take advantage and hurt the sheep. And so Jesus is basically saying either you're for us or you're against us. You're with us or you're in opposition to us. And then he gets to verse 6. And there's an interesting thing that happens verse 6. They basically go, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like, you're talking about a shepherd, you're talking about thieves and robbers, we don't understand. Verse 7, then he says this, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who came before me are thieves and robbers. So what Jesus does is he simply changes the illustration. I do this with my kids all the time. I'll explain something and go, man, so you would understand it this way, and then they just look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, well, let me try a different illustration. And then I try to describe it again, and then like, oh, that makes more sense, right? So what Jesus is doing is the exact same thing. There's the shepherd, and, uh, and there's sheep, and then there are thieves and robbers. And then he goes, well, let me try it again because that wasn't working. I'm the gate. I'm the entry into safety. I'm the entry into the pen where the sheep go to be protected. But there are still thieves and robbers who are climbing in by some other means, and taking advantage of the sheep. And so he's describing, again, all the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the gatekeepers, the religious establishment, the small group leaders, the pastors, the elders, 
Now, he gives full context when he comes to verse 10, the verse we're looking at. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then verses 11 to 18, which we're not going to get into, is again, all Jesus is doing is describing. And then the shepherd and the gate, they love, they care, they include, they invite. They, and it's all these amazing statements about who Jesus is. Now, I want to go back to uh, verse 10 for a moment. It's on there on the screen. And I want to play a little game of who's who, okay? And uh, you guys can help me out. I. Who is the I that is being talked about in this particular passage? Jesus. Very good. Front row. Excellent. Jesus, okay? So we're all on the same page. Jesus says, I have come that they. Who is the they that we're talking about? The sheep. The followers. Those that are coming alongside and following Jesus, those that listen to his voice, those that obey and respond and and are in relationship. That's who he's talking about, the they is. So that comes down to the contrast. Who is the thief? Religious leaders, the Pharisees, the elders, small group leaders, those that have been a part of the church for a really long time. Those that say this is the way church works, this is establishment, this is rules, this is religion. That's who he's talking to. Now, so what? The question becomes, what does that matter? It matters because it actually changes the entire complexity of the passage. It actually matters because what he's saying is not that Satan or the accuser is the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. What he's saying is that you are the ones that are stealing, killing, and destroying. It is the religious that are doing that. It is those that are on the inside. It's those that have faith or religion. It is those that are in authority. The religious leaders, us, you, me. He's saying that you, it's possible for you to be the ones that actually steal, kill, and destroy. So the question should become, how is it that we are taking freedom found in Jesus away from people? Is that possible? What does that look like? What does it look like to exploit or abuse? What does it look like to stand in complete opposition to the desires and ways of Jesus you want to talk about on Father's Day, right? (laughs) And before we answer this, I'll say this. All week long, I've been continuing to think about these questions. And I'll be honest, it is not the most fun thing to be thinking about. I much prefer the passage when we falsely assume that the person we're talking about is Satan, because it kind of excludes me. I know I'm not Satan, therefore I don't steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus has come for life, an abundant life. And that feels really good. Or what I like to do, and you might do this too, we read the Bible and we put ourselves in the hero position, right? We always do that, or often do that. So we become the ones that like are the they. We're the sheep. Jesus is coming so that we might have life to the full. We couldn't possibly be the thieves. We couldn't possibly be the robbers. Or we look at the text and we go, you know what? I'm so glad that there's the I in the text. I am too. That there is a Savior who loves and cares. and res- But that's not who he's talking about. What he's talking about And who he's talking to is the thieves and the robbers, the us, the religious. And so 
we have to, in order to be genuine and honest with the text, at least have to ask ourselves the question, how do we fit into that scenario? Is it possible that we are a part of the very problem that does not give life to people? And so, I thought about a few things this week. Now, they may not apply directly to our community, but they may. They may even apply directly to you or to me. But I think there are things that we should consider if we are in this category of potentially being thieves. I'm going to highlight a few. Number one, thieves promote fear. Thieves tend to promote fear. And what I mean by that is they hold hostage people and they use fear to do that. There's lots of ways that that looks. Um, I know that there are communities that will shame people and create boundaries that are all established by the what-ifs of fear. If you step out of line, that there is a God who will have his way with you. They paint a picture of a vengeful and uh, and just a mean, kind of wrath-oriented, only justice God. And someone that will come down on you if you step out of line. That was probably the image of the God I grew up with. There was a God that, that I kind of like cowered toward and there was fear. And if, if I did something wrong, I knew there could be a result or an action. There were times that I remember even being told when I was young that like if something went wrong. I mean like I'd be going through the day and I would stub my toe. And one of the first things I would do is go... How in the last 24 hours have I sinned, and what have I done that would allow that to happen to me, that God would allow that thing to take place? That that we are being driven by fear. That is not a life that gives life and abundance to people. That is something that, like, brings shame and guilt and injury to people. I think any community that holds others hostage by fear is guilty of entering the gate by some other means. That means we're guilty of harming the sheep. We destroy lives when we manipulate with fear. We create cultures that I think mean that people who long to be honest and vulnerable instead hide because of fear of what will happen. If people, I think, are afraid to share their true and authentic self, if they're unwilling to be vulnerable and honest with others, then what we're doing is we're allowing people to live in shame and rejection. Fear that if they utter something, they will not be accepted and welcomed and shown grace. And that, I think, is the opposite of abundant life. The second thing that thieves or robbers do is they demand certainty. They demand certainty. Some of the most compelling things in my life over the last several years in terms of faith have come from people who ask hard questions. They come from people who are willing to kind of challenge the norm. What they heard, what they grew up with, what they've been wrestling with, and instead they force us to ask new questions. They allow us to lean into creativity and to wonder, and instead of limiting the possibilities of who God is, they seek to figure out who he is even more. And it becomes this beautiful dance where faith becomes something to be explored and not something to be determined. 
That, that walking with God becomes something where Jesus is to be followed and not just to be studied. That there is this relational dynamic that is taking place that makes faith beautiful and growing and vibrant. And I think that when we criticize, either individually, corporately, or as the church universally, when we criticize people because their viewpoint doesn't necessarily align with ours, what we do is we bring damage. We abuse, we stifle thinking, we stifle creativity. I mean, if we did that and we tried early on, we'd say it's fundamental to the very core of our faith, and yet it was not the original thought of those that follow Jesus. It wasn't even an original thought of the disciples who were consistently confused. And so if we have a place where we just say, no, no, there, there can't be that, what we tend to do when that happens is religious leaders then become guilty of making the good the ultimate. There's this interesting passage in John 5 that says this. You search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What the text is saying is that the the scriptures have been given to us because they bear witness to who Jesus is. Not that they themselves, the scriptures, are eternal life. But what we've done is we've made the good, the scriptures, the ultimate at times. And what ends up happening is that we begin to take on the role of Pharisees where we say things like, that's not what I see in the Bible. That's not how I read it. And then we take center stage because then our thinking about it becomes what we determine to be the norm for everyone else. And so when we make the text a a collection of proof texts that determine that we're in the right and everyone else isn't, then what we've done is we've actually divided community. We've actually hindered abundant life. We've actually brought hurt and pain There are all kinds of ways that this happens where we attend at times to use the scriptures as a weapon rather than as a gift. Even as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me that that could be the very thing you feel at this very moment. And what I mean by that is this. For 40 years of my life, reading the Bible, praying, and having come across John 10 numerous times, I always just took for granted that the thief was Satan. Maybe you had a similar. Maybe you grew up in the church and they just simply said, thief is Satan, Satan's in complete opposite to Jesus. He kills, steals, destroys Jesus' life. While that is true, that isn't what this says, in my humble opinion. And I think we have to wrestle with that. So if there's something that for 40 years I just went, yeah, oh yeah, that's what it says. Absolutely. Unequivocally. That's what I've always heard. Until I actually read it and studied it and questioned it and wrestled with it in a way that I went, whoa, what if that's not what it's saying? What if what I just assumed all along wasn't actually what it was suggesting? It forces us to consider new ways. It forces us to do what I think is really, really beautiful, and that is to wrestle with the text, which is truth in life. 
but to also to do so in a way that means we wrestle with Christ. And every time we wrestle with Christ, as we see in the Old Testament, we end up walking with a limp, which means we've been changed, which means our life has been altered, which means we have a new way of seeing, a new way of being in the world. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I want to give you two more to consider. Thieves fence in the church. We talked about this idea a while back that the church is a watering hole, that its purpose is to invite people into the source of life, Jesus, rather than putting up fencing around the outside to keep people out. And I think we would acknowledge that throughout the history of the church, we have uh, said what we want is everyone to come in and to grow and to be as vibrant and full as possible. And yet, I think we have a strong history of creating lines, of making boundaries, of trying to decide who's in and who's out. And I think within the history of the church, I'll just point out a few that are um, maybe some of our more obvious ones, but we could go into many others. I think the church has historically had a history of uh, placing women in a position that are not of equality within the church. And so you have this historical perspective where that has been the case, where they're not given full participation and full uh, use of gifts within the church. We see it where churches in the past have banned people from their community or their assembly simply because of the color of their skin. We have horrific stories of that saying that you can't come, or if you can, there's a different entrance for you, and you can sit in a different section. These things grieve the heart of God. I've got a good friend of mine who, for, we've been friends for over 20 years, and uh, for his entire life he has been gay, and he feels that same lines that have been drawn. I mean, in just very hurtful way. His desire would be to be a missionary and to serve and to, and to give his life to the church and all he has felt for years is rejection and pain and exclusion. I mean, there are stories after story after story of thieves, robbers, who fence off the church and say it's only permitted for some and not for others. We could go into numerous other stories, but the idea is, again, where do we sit with that? How do we deal with that? How do we welcome the stranger and invite in those who are marginalized? Last, thieves point out the speck and miss the log. The reason I say that is because I'll be the first to admit I do that. I do that all the time. I did that with my kids yesterday before the wedding. <laughs> Talking about you right now. You didn't handle that well. Well, what about what you did? Well, again, don't shift the blame, right? <laughs> right? We need to deal with the situation as it is. You see what I mean, right? It's so easy for us to, like, point the finger and judge and go, that's on you. But the text makes it really clear that while we're kind of, like, picking out that little speck, that dirt, that little fleck that irritates your eye, that at the same time we have like a stinking razor blade sized log in our eye. And we're oblivious to it. We're blind. We don't see it. And I think if we're to be among the people who 
are the opposite of thieves and robbers. It means we're on the side of Jesus. And to be on the side of Jesus means to give life and hope and passion and energy and abundance to people. And yesterday, uh, many of you were with me at the wedding, and uh, the verses that they picked out, one of the verses that they used was in Romans 13, 8. It says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I mean, those are incredible verses for a marriage ceremony, but I would say that they're just pretty much incredible, period, right? That the only thing that you and I owe anyone is full and unconditional love. It's not our responsibility to fence things in. That's for thieves and robbers. It's not our responsibility to judge and point out the speck when we have a log. It's our responsibility to love. In any and everything that a robber or a community or an individual that you or I would do that thwarts and does not bring wholeness and shalom and healing and hope to the world, not our responsibility. Ours is to outdo one another in showing love. Ours is to embrace one another. At this wedding, uh, they had a moment in it where they asked uh, Daniel Kaufman, who's a part of our community, to write uh, a rewritten section of Colossians chapter 3. And uh, he read this thing, and I'm just standing there watching him. Tears are kind of like welling up in my eyes as I'm looking at the couple, and they're looking at him. And uh, I asked him if I could re-render it for this morning. Because I, I feel as if... If there's a way to live into what it means to give abundant life, it's what this passage is talking about. If we want to be, as a community, the opposite of thieves and robbers, those who exploit and abuse, then I think this text is where it's at. Colossians 3 says this, and I'm reading his adapted version. Um, New community. Just as you've chosen one another, just as you've set yourselves aside for one another, And just as you're dearly loved by one another, so also have you been chosen by God. So also have you been set aside for God, and so also are you dearly loved by God. Therefore, God commands you to dress for the occasion using a wardrobe that he has specially picked out for you. You sit here before us today clothed and beautiful. But God is just getting started. For you also stand before God as before a mirror, beholding God's image and being transformed into that same image from one degree to another. From this day forward, God is your tailor. In Genesis, God clothed his new creation. He made garments of animal skins for Adam and Eve, and he covered their nakedness. In Ezekiel, God clothed his covenant people. He covered Israel with an exquisite dress and adorned her with jewelry. She was a legendary beauty brought to perfection by God's personal wardrobe. And in Revelation, God clothes his bride and his church, us. He fits her with a bridal gown, bright and clean and shining with the righteousness of the saints. This is how God clothes his creation, his people, his church, his bride. And this new community, 
is how God clothes you. God is clothing you with garments of compassion, kindness, humility, gentle strength, and patient self-control. God is clothing you with a garment of his own forgiveness with which you will bind one another's injuries. God is clothing you with a garment of his own peace that will rule in your hearts. God is clothing you with a garment of gratitude that will fill your hearts with songs, songs of the Spirit, hymns of wisdom, and psalms of prayer. God is clothing you with a garment that covers every other virtue, resurrection love. Resurrection love binds the whole of your outfits together in perfect unity. You are or just as we bind together the whole of our community in perfect unity. You are clothed in the same resurrection love with which Jesus Christ conquered sin and death. Love is your sword of the Spirit and your helmet of salvation, shield of faith and your footwear of good news. Love is your all-purpose garment for resurrection life. Will you stand with me as we read this last part, a benediction? New community. May the Lord keep you and clothe you with blessings. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and clothe you with graciousness. And may the Lord turn toward you and clothe you with peace. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.